I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're, thank you, Carrie. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our study today in the, in the various ways that the New Testament talks about the church. Oh, by the way, if you didn't pick up the uh, study helps this morning, would you raise your hand so we can put one in your hand? You're going to need this one. <clears throat> Picture's worth a thousand words. You've got to have the muscle list. Um, we've looked at a couple of different ways. Yeah, hold your hands up and they'll put one in it. Outline and muscle pictures. We talked about the different ways that the church is represented in Scripture in analogies that we can understand. We talked about how it's like a flock. And we're the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd. And we have those characteristics of sheep and shepherd and, and the church is like that. And then we talked about other relationships. Peter talks about the church as being a temple that is made up of living stones. And so we're the stones, we're living stones, and the church is a temple and, and, and together we make a house. Uh, we've talked about other analogies, but this morning we come to, to what I think is probably the Apostle Paul's favorite uh, analogy. And that is that the church is a body. And it has a head. And that head is Jesus Christ. And we are members of the body of Christ. Anybody else need a study guide? Anybody else still doesn't have one? Raise your hand, we'll get one to you. I think everybody's covered now. So... <clears throat> I want to talk this morning from Ephesians chapter 4 about how the church is the body of Christ. And Paul used this analogy in ways that he clearly understood, and it, re it relates to a lot of things. But um, I think maybe if perhaps more was known about how the body functioned, Paul might have said more. Now, this is just the Paul Martin version uh, not the scripture version, because the Bible clearly says Jesus Christ is the head. But I wonder if we might not all also look at the possibility that the Holy Spirit is the heart. The reason I say that is because in the church, Paul says the, the Spirit is Lord. He is, he is the one in the church who is kind of governing, and, and he is the one who fills everyone and even Jesus, the head, is the fullness of, we are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And how is it that we're filled and pulled into the body of Christ and put in our place, but by the Holy Spirit? And if you think about the function of the heart, the function of the heart is to carry oxygen and nutrients to every part of the body and to remove the waste products at the cellular level, take those back out and to keep the cells healthy. And isn't that the role of the Holy Spirit? Isn't it His uh, ministry to us to mediate for us the life of Jesus Christ? To bring us fresh life. Uh, Jesus, in the analogy of the vine and the branches, you, you, uh, I am the vine, you're the branches. The one who abides in me and I in Him. Uh, that one brings forth fruit. And how do we make that connection? It's the Holy Spirit of God in our lives that connects us vitally to Jesus Christ. 
And yet, uh, Paul tells us that Christ is the head of the body. He is the one, we know what our heads do, right? It gives direction. And he is the head of the body, giving direction, giving uh, focus, giving intent, giving purpose. He is the one controlling the body. But Paul says we are members one of another in the body of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a very, very powerful analogy. It tells us, for one thing, that the church is not an organization. It is an organism. It has life. It doesn't merely have structure, but it has life. This building has structure, but it doesn't have any life. If you go downtown and you look at the John Hancock Center and you see those uh, steel girders and how the exterior of that building is designed, it has structure, but it's not a living thing. We have life. We're an organic body. Jesus Christ lives in us. And there are things that affect the body that are greater than ourselves. Um, things that can happen to the church, things that can happen to uh, us spiritually, things, impacts and influences that we have that can have a far greater impact in the body of Christ than just merely your trouble or mine. We are interdependent. We are interlocked one with another. Um, I got a little bit of teasing a couple of weeks ago when I put the Hubble images of space up on the screen, and then I put the uh, Nikon, it's a small world, and some mountain scenes and whatever, teasing me about being in science class. Well, today we go to anatomy and physiology, and I want you to take out this little sheet because I want to share some things with you that I think when we see how the body works will help us to make this analogy more alive and real. Now, I hope none of you are grossed out uh, by um, skeletal-looking things like the hand down there and the sort of a little bit of a cartoon illustration at the top about muscle fibers. But, but I want to explain something, and I want to use a muscle to do it, and I want to explain something that will help us understand our connection to the body. I've chosen a muscle called abductor pollicis brevis. Now, Physiologists, anatomists, and theologians all use Latin words to make you think they're smart. Okay? But these words really have very, very basic meanings. Uh, abductor means it abducts it. What happens when someone's abducted? They're kidnapped and carried away, right? So abductor means it's the muscle that takes the thumb, the pollicis, away from the hand or away from the body. And it's the short guy, not the long guy. It's the brevis, not the longest. So that makes sense, right? So I'm talking about the little muscle in the thumb that takes the thumb away. It's the little short guy right here. And I want to talk about that just a little bit and its connection to the head in a vital union. Are you with me so far? Got it? Okay, look at your picture. Abductor pollicis brevis is this little black darkened one here by the thumb. And in that muscle, there are fibers. One muscle has a lot of different fibers, and that's what this illustration at the top is showing you. It kind of gives a muscle cutaway, and it shows a bunch of fibers out here. And 
all of those fibers together in parallel make up the muscle. And when they shorten, the muscle operates. And when they relax, you can bring it back the other way. So those fibers shorten to make it work, and they relax to let you do other things with your thumb. And you notice that in the illustration at the top that says the spinal cord, and you see coming off of that, it says motor unit one and motor unit two, and there's little black lines. And those little black lines go over and land on a muscle fiber and terminate in a bunch of little black dots on the muscle fiber. That's supposed to be representing the neuromuscular junction. But here's the point of what's going on here. All these little muscle fibers in my thumb, and in the muscle I've chosen to talk about, there's about 300 or so motor units. How do I get my thumb to do this? My brain has to send a signal. And it sends a signal from my brain through my spinal cord, down my arm, all the way to my thumb muscle, and it says, muscle, work. <laughs> and that signal says to my thumb, do this. And my thumb obeys the head. The reason it obeys is because my head, my brain, is connected to every single fiber in my thumb muscle. By the way, I have a number of thumb muscles. We're just talking about one of them. Because when I do this, how do I get it back when this relaxes? I've got to have something that does this or this or this. So there's a lot of things that my thumb needs to do. But this is just one of them. And my head has a connection to every single muscle fiber. Now, how do I know, how does my thumb muscle know whether to move gently and easily or whether to move powerfully and forcefully? Well, my head doesn't tell the fibers. This is cool. Don't miss this one. I'm coming back to it about mid-sermon. How does my head tell the, fi how, tell the muscle how strong to work? Well, it does that by recruiting either 1, 10, 50, 100, or 300 fibers. Because each fiber, when it gets a signal from the brain, gives all it's got. It's either all or nothing. There's no such thing as a muscle fiber that's half-hearted that just contracts a little bit. It goes the whole way. As soon as it gets a signal from the, from the brain, it's sold out. It goes to work 100%. It's called the all-or-nothing principle. So if I'm playing the piano, and I come to a part in the music that says, play this very softly, pianissimo, I have to get a signal to my brain to say, don't do this anymore. Play very softly. And the way that happens is my brain says, okay, I only need about 10% of you guys right now. When we get to the fortissimo section, I'll take 80% uh, of you. But I only want 10% right now for this little soft section. And so 10% of the fibers contract and the others relax and just take it easy until more strength is needed. That's how we're able to do things like take the stuck lid off of a jar with the very same motion that we would 
perhaps caress the cheek of a baby. You wouldn't want to grab a kid and you take the jar apart. you got to have finesse. you got to have control. And the control comes because the head stuck my finger in my eye. <laughs> that wasn't very smart. Uh, see what happens when you're not controlled? you got to have control because the brain is connected to every single fiber. And every fiber in a muscle is ready to respond 100% with all of its energy when it gets a signal from the brain. What happens if the muscle doesn't work? What happens if the vital connection is lost? We call that paralysis. We call it disconnected. The muscle is no longer getting the signal. What happens when the muscle is doing things that the brain isn't telling it to do. We call that spasms. We call that a muscle that's just gone nuts. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's off on its own. And it's not meaningful. And sometimes they oppose one another. What happens when all of the fibers kind of on their own say, oh, I think I'm going to contract altogether a thousand percent. You get up out of bed and walk around because you have a cramp. That's very unhappy. Muscles have to be under the total control of the head in order to function. And while I'm talking to you about this illustration, all kinds of things are going on in my body to make this happen. I haven't thought about it. I just did because I, I'm about to call it to mind. It's a funny thing about breathing. The only ones of you here this morning that are aware of your breathing are the ones of you that are having trouble breathing. If you're not having any trouble breathing until I started talking about it, you weren't conscious of it. I've been breathing the whole time, and until this moment, I wasn't aware of it. My brain keeps telling my lungs what to do. My diaphragm keeps working. My lungs keep sucking in air. My heart keeps circulating it around. Uh, my toes and my heels are sending signals to my head, telling it where my feet are, where my balance is, where my body is. And my head sending signals back, saying, okay, a little pressure here, a little pressure there, this muscle lighten up, this one tighten up, or he's going to fall over. And my head is constantly maintaining that vigilant attention in order for me to talk to you. I gesture with my hands. If you tied my hands down, I couldn't talk anymore because I, I use my hands so much in my speech, but... It's meaningful. I hope it's meaningful gestures. I'm not standing up here doing this, but because my brain is controlling everything that's happening in my body. And we don't even have time this morning, although I would really tempted to go there, but we could talk about electrolytes, and we could talk about acid-base balance, and we could talk about how muscles work, and, and, and what action takes place in metabolism and contraction, and what waste products have to be carried away by the circulatory system. And then we could talk about the lungs and the kidneys and the digestive tract and, and separating out the waste. And we could go on and on and on about a body that is so interdependent that every part is dependent upon every other part and related to every part because we are a whole body comprised of very vital and very specific individual parts that must work together. And when you and I have a part of our body that isn't working, we say we're sick. We say we're hurt. 
we have an injury. Something is wrong that needs to be fixed. And we're going through that whole debate in this country right now, but we spend tons and tons of money trying to keep our bodies healthy and giving attention uh, to little things and big things to make us comfortable, to make us well, to make us whole, to give us energy. We spend a lot of money trying to maintain health. And Paul says that the church is a body that's like that. And every one of us are connected to the head, and every one of us has the fullness of Christ in us, and yet we are also connected to one another, and we are in a dependent relationship. When I look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, in fact, when I look at, at what Paul has to say about this whole subject, one of the things that stands out to me is that the, the number one thing that the body of Christ is called on to manifest is love. Love that is expressed in unity and in the glorification and magnification of Jesus Christ. But love is that that thing, that experience, that behavior of the body of Christ that makes it unique. What makes us different from the Kiwanis Club? What makes us different from your corporation where you work? What makes us Different from your neighborhood. How do we differ from these other organizations or businesses or, or clubs or whatever? The body of Jesus Christ has the life of Christ in it to manifest the love of God in such a way that the world will observe how we act with each other. Remember, Jesus said you will love each other and this is the way the world will know that you're my disciples. How will they know that you love each other? By how we all feel? You can't see a feeling. You can only see action. You know, I can see you sitting there this morning with your face all scrunched up and and your eyes tight and your mouth pulled across the front of your face and I don't know if you're angry with me. I don't know if you're in back pain or if your stomach hurts. I don't know what's going on inside of you. I can't tell what your feeling is. I can only tell from your actions. And the world is going to know that we love each other by the way we treat each other, by what they see us doing one to the other. That's what makes them aware that there's something different. And Jesus said, when they look at you, they're supposed to kind of scratch their head and say, wow, we don't see this going on in any other place. This is how they'll know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. If we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we can see that this word, this focus of love stands out there. Once you look at verse 2, for example, Paul says in verse 2, there's probably a reason why I tucked that in there. I'm going to lose it in a minute. Paul says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. He starts out in chapter 4. By the way, in the book of Ephesians, when we get to chapter 4, Paul is about to turn the corner from the foundation, the doctrine of who we are, to the practice of what it means. And when he turns that corner, he says, one of the things that ought to stand out among you is that you 
uh, show forbearance to one another in love. Look at verse 15. He says, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. And verse uh, 16, toward the end, that causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If you look at verse 32, the very end of the chapter, the word love is not used, but it's most certainly implied when he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And why has he done that in Christ? Because he loves us. How do I know that Paul is after love in this church, this Ephesian church, when he starts talking about the body? How do I know that love is the goal, the primary goal? Well, we know perhaps more about the Ephesian church than any other church in the New Testament. We encounter the church at Ephesus in the book of Acts when it's, when it's born. We encounter it again when Paul goes back to visit the elders. It shows up a couple of times. We find later on in Paul's ministry that he sends Timothy to Ephesus because they're starting to have trouble. In Acts, he warned them. He said, I, I, I've seen in the Spirit what's going to happen to you. There are going to be wolves that come in in sheep's clothing. Some of them are going to be from your very number, meeting with me right here on the beach. Some of them are going to be from your own number. And they're going to cause trouble in the church. And he says, I want to warn you. I want you to be on your guard. And by the time this begins to develop, he sends Timothy to Ephesus to bring correction. And you read those two letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. That is Paul counseling Timothy, encouraging him on what he needs to be doing in Ephesus. So you read those letters and you get some insight as to what's happening. They're in trouble. They're struggling. They're having some problems. You go toward the end of the New Testament and you find that John, the Apostle John, ends up in the city of Ephesus. And John is ministering there. And he is the one who probably writes his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, back to Ephesus. And then in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, when Jesus, or chapter 2, when Jesus begins to speak to the churches, the letters to the churches, the first letter is to Ephesus. And he says, you finally dealt with this heresy going on. But now that you're doctrinally pure, you're still lacking passion. You need to go back and recover your first love for me. You need to develop your passion for me. Go back and do the things you've done at first. So we know from all of these New Testament references that Ephesus was a focal key point and that Paul was very, very concerned about this. And he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He makes it plain. He says, the goal of our instruction is love. The goal is love. I want you to teach people how to love each other from a pure heart and a sincere conscience, a pure conscience, a sincere conscience and faith. I want you to teach the people how to love each other. That's the goal. And so I know that's the goal. I know that's the goal. In chapter 4, as he begins to talk about the church as a body, the goal is to teach people how to love each other. So that they can manifest and model the life of Jesus Christ in the church. It is the most powerful draw for unbelievers to come to Christ when they come into an assembly, a group of people that are loving each other the way that Jesus said it ought to happen. 
And, and I, was, I was sitting up there as we were singing a little while ago, and I was thinking about it. Actually, I was thinking about these empty chairs, frankly. And I was thinking about a whole plethora of feelings that kind of go through my mind on a Sunday morning as I'm just kind of contemplating things. And it came to me, and, and I'm very, very genuine in this. The church growth, in terms of numbers, is not my responsibility. Um, pastors who take that on as a personal responsibility do all kinds of crazy things to make it happen. And uh, that's where the church oftentimes gets in trouble. Numeric growth is, is not my job. But there is another kind of growth that is actually far more important. And as I was sitting there thinking about it, I realized, really, that is the one thing that means more to me than anything else. I, I, may, I may be here another 20 years. I don't know. I don't know when God's going to call me home. But say he gives me another 20 years, or 25 years, if you don't mind listening to an 80-year-old guy. You know, some of you won't care. You'll be in heaven, too. <laughs> but say I have another 20, 25 years. And, uh, you know, at the, at the end, we're 120 strong. After... 45 years of ministry, the Alliance Bible Church in McHenry still has 120 members. That won't bother me if, if we've learned and grown in love. If we've learned how to love each other. If we learn that, that's the goal. To magnify Jesus Christ by allowing His Spirit to live through us in Christ-like love. To where this community marvels at the way we love each other. Did you know in the campaign, um, I forget what it's called, something like Catholics Come Home or something, I forget what it is. But did you know that in part of the apologetic that the Catholic Church is teaching to go out and rescue all of its uh, wayward members who have become Protestants, that one of the things they talk about is, we are the one true church. We've stayed true for 2,000 years. It's not quite true, but anyway. And look at all those Protestants. They can't get along with each other. That's why there's hundreds of Protestant different groups. They can't get along together. They can't work together. They can't function together. They don't know what's up or what's down. They don't have any kind of unity. That's why we're the true church. That's what the Catholics tell their people. Go look at it. That's the apologetic. That's, that's the argument. One of the arguments. They can't get along with each other. The sad thing about it is there's a lot of truth to that. That's what bothers me. I don't think they're right. That's, that's, a, that's a non sequitur. That's a false argument to, to come home to Catholicism. But the accusation, unfortunately, has some merit. Because we have such a hard time within a church getting along. Never mind trying to get the Baptists together with the Assembly of God and the Presbyterians and the CNMA. We have a hard time trying to get along within the church. And Paul says, this is the goal. 
that we learn to manifest the love of God within the body of Christ in such a way that the church that it causes the growth and the development and the building up of itself in love, so that we can reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. So, what characterizes a healthy congregation? What does a healthy congregation look like? Paul tells us, beginning in verse 11, some of the characteristics of a healthy body. He says, first of all, it has spiritual leaders that have been appointed by Christ Himself to teach the individual members how to use their spiritual gifts in ministry serving one another. Catch what he says here. Spiritual leaders. Who? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. How did they get to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers? Jesus Christ called them. He called them and he appointed them and he gave them to the church. And what's their job? Their job is to teach the individual members how to use their spiritual gifts in ministering to one another. See what it says. Verse 12. To equip the saints. That's you. For the work of service, the word service means ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. We were having a conversation the other day about uh, when, you know, when people call the church, they're looking for the pastor. What is it they're looking for? Well, if you call the church and you're in this room and you're looking for the pastor, um, that's fine. But all, all the people in the community that call the church looking for the pastor... We happen to be the Alliance Bible Church, ABC. We show up pretty quickly in, in the list of churches, and we get a lot of calls because of our alphabetical uh, order. And so, and everybody always wants to talk to the pastor. And, and what do they want? They want some kind of spiritual help. And, and what are they expecting when they make that call? And, and we had this conversation, and friends, I want to tell you something. As much as Martin Luther did to, to rescue the gospel out of Catholicism by grace alone, by faith alone, through Scripture alone, one of the things that never, ever got fixed that is a carryover from pre-Reformation days is that the church is comprised of clergy and laity. Find those terms in your Bible. First one that finds one, make an appointment, show me where it is. Clergy and laity. That concept is foreign to the New Testament. Professional pastors who are professional clergy are not found in Scripture. In fact, the whole concept of being a professional is not found in Scripture. Peter was a fisherman. What made him capable of being the head apostle of the early church? He was a fisherman. Where did he go to seminary? What pedigree did he have on his wall? I'll grant that he knew Greek and Hebrew, but that's because he spoke both of those languages every day. But what kind of biblical languages did he study? What gives him that position? Christ called him, and on the day of Pentecost, filled him with the Holy Spirit and said, this is what I want you doing. And Peter said, okay. And that's how he got to be Peter the Apostle. He didn't get that by getting a Master of Divinity degree in a seminary somewhere. 
we have a concept that the clergy is supposed to do the ministry and everybody else is just supposed to do what they're told and put their offering in the offering plate and show up on Sunday so the church looks relatively full. And that's it. And nothing could be further from the truth. Notice the reason why Jesus Christ gives spiritual leadership to the church. Notice what he says, in order to equip the saints for works of ministry. My responsibility, besides being a teacher, and that's part of the pastor-teacher role, but my responsibility is to help you discover what your spiritual gifts are and learn how to use them in caring for one another in the body of Christ. That is the, the role of leadership, to help everyone else recognize, utilize, and begin to exercise their spiritual gifts in a way that the whole body benefits. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know what gifts God has given you? I mean, let me give you some help here. Don't go take a spiritual gift inventory test. Don't, don't go take those things. Uh, depending on who wrote them is how they come out. If you're Pentecostal, you're going to add in a bunch of gifts. If you're dispensational sensationist, you're going to take out a bunch of gifts. If you're Presbyterian, you're going to like some gifts better than others than you would if you're a Baptist. Whoever wrote the spiritual gift thing made it up, and basically what they're going by is what your talents are. And that's not a spiritual gift. Your talent is not a spiritual gift. But if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, ask the people who know you and, and who are close to you to help you figure it out. And, and look at it this way. What am I doing when I sense the presence and power of God operating in my life? What am I doing when I feel so natural, so at home in the Lord that, that, it, that it's just like He's just flowing through me? What do I do what am I doing when people say to me, oh man, you really ministered to my life. You really made a difference. If nobody is ever saying that to you, then I've got to ask, what are you doing? But what are you doing when people are sensing the presence of God? Spiritual gifts are supernatural. They have supernatural impact. You become aware of God's presence and the other person becomes aware of God's presence because God is in the mix. And, and you are enjoying it because it is something that God has given you. So what are you doing when that happens? Are you sitting with a friend over a cup of coffee listening to some of the struggles they're having in their life and, 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 and nodding and affirming and interjecting some spiritual counsel and they're going, oh man, you helped me so much this morning. Or are you carrying them a meal when they've been sick and unable to prepare for themselves? Are you helping them with their yard work? Are you the kind of person in the church that says, man, I see what we need to do here and you can inspire four or five other people to come along and move in that direction because God has given you the gifts of leadership? Are you the kind of person that come into chaos and say, good grief, I don't see how you guys can get anything done. You're always banging into each other. What if we do this and this and this? And all of a sudden, harmony and, and organization and order begins to develop and, because you have the spiritual gift of administration. What are you doing when God is active and at work in your life? 
Some of you remember I've shared this story before, but I want to go back to it because it's so very important. There was a study done oh, quite a few years ago, I think 15 years ago at Vanderbilt. Well, it was done in a number of places, but Vanderbilt University was one of them. And one of the things that they did was they wanted to determine the effectiveness of trained counselors. So here's what they did. They, they recruited some professors that were college university professors in the history department, in the math department, in the biology department that were just nice people, you know. Not everybody is a nice person that way, but these are just nice people. And said, would you be willing for us to send you counseling clients who have problems in their life? And it's like, you got to be kidding. I'm a biology professor. What do I know about that? And said, you don't have to know anything about it. In fact, you can't even tell them that you're a biology professor. We're going to give you an office over in our department, and we're going to assign people to you, and we just want you to spend uh, 12, 16 weeks with them talking to them. And then for people coming in the door who needed counseling, they said, Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer you free counseling for 12 to 16 weeks. Does that sound good? Oh, yeah. Here's the, pro- here's, here's the, here's the caveat. You're not going to know whether you're getting a trained counselor or a history professor. Some of you are going to be assigned to certified, licensed psychologists, and some of you are going to be assigned to the math instructor. And um, all we want you to do at the end of 12 weeks is to tell us how you did. What do you think? So, random assignment. People didn't know who they were seeing. Counselors were instructed not to reveal their true identity. They just sat and listened. Uh Uh-huh, okay. Whatever, Whatever happened in the counseling process, at the end of 12 weeks, they did an assessment of everyone who had been randomized in that trial. And you know what they learned? Some people got better. Actually, the majority of people got better. Some people experienced no change. And a small, the smallest percentage got worse. Does that surprise you? That happens all the time. Given 12 weeks in any situation, any crisis in your life, give it three months. Some people will get better. Some people will not be any different. And some people will get worse. Now, here's the real thing, though. Between the trained professional counselors and the empathic listeners who had no training in counseling psychology, there was no difference in outcome. There was no difference in outcome. Proving that an empathic listener over a cup of coffee can be as effective in contributing to the change and well-being of a person who has trouble in their life as a trained professional. Now, I'm not dissing psychologists this morning. Well, I may be, actually, because I've got two more things later on that will come up. But it's not my goal to diss psychologists this morning. It's my goal to point out the reality that most people who want spiritual counsel and help really do not need a person trained in psychodynamics. They need a person who is able to sit down over a cup of coffee and prayerfully listen to them Invite the Holy Spirit into the meeting and offer loving help and assistance. If nothing else, just to pray with them and and the Holy Spirit of God can do the work. Sometimes we just need to be connected. Friends, we have vital significance to one another in the body of Christ and your role is important. What Christ has given you is important. My 
Abductor pollicis brevis. My little muscle in my thumb here can only do one thing. That's all it does. The interesting thing is it can't even put my thumb back. It has to have other muscles to put my thumb back. The only thing it can do is move it out. And actually it doesn't do that by itself. A lot goes on to get that done. And that's the only thing it can do. It can't pump blood. It can't filter blood. It can't send out adrenaline signals. It can't do anything but move my thumb. But when I need to do this, I need that muscle. And here's, I told you I was coming back to this. And some people, when I say this, they take this and they just run crazy with it. Okay? Be careful. There's a context. But here's the thing you need to know. That little thumb muscle is connected directly to the brain. It is connected directly to... It's not connected to the pastor. It's not connected to the church leadership team. It is connected directly to the brain. Now, some people hear that and say, Oh, that means I can do whatever I want to whenever the Spirit moves me. And you don't even know how to listen to the Holy Spirit. That's why spiritual leadership needs to equip the saints for works of service because you need to make sure you're hearing God. God is not the author of confusion. So if you're trying to do stuff and there's confusion, you know, my sister-in-law says this. Every time she hears all these preachers that say they heard from God and these people that heard from God, she says, it's interesting to me that God's not telling them all to do the same thing. They're all getting different messages. That's a very good observation. If the Holy Spirit is truly guiding you, you're going to be in harmony. But the key is to be connected to God in vital union, to be listening to the Holy Spirit, to have it, to have His guidance. And when you get the signal, to give it all of your energy, to yield yourself completely. Remember that little muscle fiber? It's all or nothing. It doesn't say, oh, okay, I'll do 20%. No, you do 100%. It's up to the head to recruit some more help if it needs a bigger response. It's up to you to give Him all you have when He stimulates you to action, to be totally yielded. And that impulse comes directly from Jesus Christ because you're in vital union with Him. And in the body of Christ, when we are working together in harmony, and, and you have learned to listen to the voice of God and the Spirit of God, and you are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is unity. And so a healthy church is characterized in the first two places by spiritual leaders that are helping individuals use their gifts, and membership, members of the body, I'm not using that in the technical sense of church membership, but I'm talking about members of the body. The toe is a member of my foot, which is a member of my body. It's a member of my person. And you are a member of the body of Christ. And you are active in the membership of the body. If you're not doing what God has called you to do, the body suffers. You know, recently every time I visit with Ruth Sween, it, it, you know, she says to me, like Carrie was quoting earlier from the Apostle Paul, I don't know, man, whether to stay and hang out with you, which is better for you, or to go and be with Jesus, which is better for me. Well, Ruth kind of got that figured out. She says, I really want to go be with Jesus. 
I'm just really tired of hanging out. I, I want to go home. I'm not sure why God is leaving me here. Now, she doesn't say that out of depression or despair. It's not that kind of a thing because Ruth has a joyful spirit in the Lord. It really is there. But her body has just been wearing her out lately. And she hasn't been able to come to church for a couple of years. And, and this uh, C. diff stuff creeps up every once in a while. And it's just devastating to her. And just she's so uncomfortable and... And, and all of that, you know, and you just see her there in the hospital from time to time, and she says, oh, man, I'm just, I'm so tired of this. And then in the same breath, almost the last time I saw her, within two minutes, she was saying, I pray for your boys every day. Ruth has been praying for Jonathan and Stephen since she met Stephen and since Jonathan was born. She'd been praying for them. She'd been praying for me. She prays for you. And I tell her, Ruth, I couldn't ask for more from anybody. You pray, and your prayers are vitally important. We need you. I mean, I, I don't have any question. I, I, it hurts me to see her suffer, but I don't have any question. I want Ruth to hang out for a while because she's a prayer warrior. She's an intercessor. I, and she prays for my family. She's started praying for my grandkids now. Praise God. I want to keep her right here, knowing what's going on and interceding. Friends, every one of you has a vital role. Don't, don't sit there and say, there's nothing I can do. There is something you can do. So, if there wasn't, you'd already be home. Not where you live on this street, but... With Jesus, you'd already be home. There's something you can do in the body of Christ. There's some vital ministry you have that you are the only one that can do it. And when you get the signal from the head, you need to be 100% committed to responding to that call and, and, and investing your energy totally in submission to the leadership of, of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit operating within you. And then Paul goes on to say, Another attribute of a healthy church is it says as a result we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by trickery of men, craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. What is the tendency of people, children, people without uh, the truth is like the wind and the waves to be tossed here and there. I was thinking about this Friday and the analogy. What is it like? You know, sometimes we're in our own soup. You know, have you ever been in the waves? Been to the beach, been in the waves, been in the, the beach on a rough day, rough surf? And being tossed around, I used to like to body surf when I was a kid, but sometimes, oh man, I'd come up with, a, with some rash. <laughs> Because if you crashed into the, you know, that, that sandy bottom and, and you crashed into that, that was quite a, quite a change. And so, um, I, I like to do that. And the waves would carry you around. And it had that kind of impact. And so, Paul is saying children are those who are carried about by the waves. I think that's their own emotions. They're kind of the, the stew they're in is bouncing them around. And then there are winds that are coming against them. And these are outside forces. People with deceitful scheming and craftiness and, and clever ideas. And they're coming against you with all kinds of popular ideas. Do this, do that. And 
this will happen to you, this great thing will happen. And in the middle of that, Paul says, a healthy body is where the truth is spoken in love. This is another place where I think we've misused that verse. You know, we say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on Nere here. You know, I, I go up to Nere and I feel like there's something i got to say to straighten her out. So I say, Nere, I just want you to know I love you, but. But Nere, I love you. It was actually, it really was, it was my psychology professor that called this the love sandwich. He says, whenever you need to bring correction, you're going to put it in the love sandwich. You say, I, I love you, love you, Jan, but. And then when you're done, you say, I love you. And that kind of buffers everything, you know. It's like, yuck. Pavlov called that operant conditioning. And if that's the only time you ever use the word I love you, what's going to happen is every time you say I love you, people are going to be ducking and running for cover. Because they're going to learn there's a butt in there somewhere. That other shoe's about to drop. That's not even what this is talking about. It's not talking about me confronting you. It's talking about a place where the truth is spoken in love. The, the corpus of doctrine, the whole body of biblical counsel is taught and preached and shared in love. Because it is the Word of God that grounds our lives, friends. It is the Word of God that keeps us from being tossed about by waves and and winds of doctrine and trickery, trickiness and craftiness and deceitful scheming. It is the Word of God that fortifies us. We need the truth of Scripture proclaimed in love constantly as, as the, the uh, necessary foundation of lives that are grounded in truth. Friends, you don't need me to, to say this to you probably, but there are absolutes. And the Bible says what they are. And we have to be grounded in those so that we're not led astray by our emotions. Emotions are totally fickle things. They're unreliable. They're not a, they're not a good gauge. You can feel good about something that's stupid. And likewise, you can feel bad and, and, and unhappy and, and frustrated and having a tough time while you're doing something you ought to be doing. And we do not live by our feelings. Not if you're mature. Children live by their feelings. Grown-ups live by what the truth is. They make their choices on the basis of truth. They take action on the basis of truth. Someone said to me the other day, I thought it was pretty interesting, aging is inevitable. Maturity is optional. That's very true. Aging is inevitable, but maturity is optional. But maturity comes when you begin to orient your life around the Spirit of God and the truth of God, and that's how you live regardless of how you feel. And so a, a, a strong church is a church where the Word of God is taught. And it's growing up in love because everyone is participating in service and ministry under the direction of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says in the last couple of verses. From whom the whole body 
being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Did you catch the every and the each? Every joint, each individual part. Can it be more plain? To the building up of itself in love. You're vital. You're important. Your, your role in this body is crucial. You must be an active participant. If you're holding back on us, then we're in trouble. And you know, the amazing thing about the church is, if you stub your toe, what do you do? Sit down, thank you. Very basic, take the weight off. Sit down, then what do you do? Say you stubbed it really bad. Come on, come on. Get the shoe, yeah, yell, get the shoe off, you know, take the sock off, check it out, see if it's bleeding, you rub it. Oh, my poor toe. I mean, you're concerned about your toe. So many times in the church, somebody stumbles, and what do we do? Well, you fool, you got what was coming to you. I don't want to fool with you. You're, you're just you're always messing up around here. Someone said we're, we're the only army that shoots its own wounded. We don't respond to one another when we have an owie. Like we respond to our own body. We want to... Why do you splint a limb that's injured? It's to take the pressure off. It's to give it a rest. It's to make it immobile. It's to protect and, and lift the weight so it can heal. And friends, in the body of Christ, it is our responsibility to go after one another, to love one another, to support one another, to splint one another when we're hurt and injured, to encourage, to lift each other up and help the growth to occur because we need each other. I need my toe. It's important to me. That's one of the things that's keeping me from falling over onto Nary this morning, or Ashley, is my toe. Yes. It's sending signals to my brain saying, you get too much weight going forward, you need to back up a little bit. I need it. i got to take care of it. I need to love it. We need to love each other like that. The individual part causes the growth of the building of the body in love. Well, I'm just exactly where I was at 8 o'clock, and I really did finish in five minutes from here on out, so I'm going to finish in five minutes. Otherwise, my sermons are going to be staggered, and I'll never get them preached right again. So, I'm going to go ahead and finish in five minutes. Paul says, as a result, this is the body. This is the body. Interdependent, necessary, every part is important. We've got to stick together. We need to love each other. We need to work together. We need to be in unity and harmony and promote the Spirit of God among us. We need to, to be one in Jesus Christ. Okay, how do we do that? He gives this big therefore. And he says, therefore, stop living like unbelievers. You can read the passage starting in verse, I think, 17 or so. Read the passage. Start living, stop living like unbelievers. Futility of their mind, darkened of their understanding, stubborn, ignorant, hard-headed, living after their emotions, following whatever whim pulls them. Stop living like unbelievers. The verb tenses, by the way, tell us a little bit about what was going on at Ephesus. 
Then he says, lay aside the old self and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Don't live any longer in your old flesh. Don't go there. You have a choice. You, yes, you do. You have a choice. You can yield to the Spirit of God or you can just do what comes natural. If you do what comes natural, you're going to be in the flesh. But if you yield to the Spirit of God, He will do in you what is supernatural. Now, here's how it looks. He says, beginning in verse, I think it's 22. I lost my place, I'm sorry. But he says in that passage, um, these are the things that characterize you when you are living this way. First of all, lay aside falsehood and speak truth, each one of you with the other. Verse 25, lay aside falsehood and speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Oh, you say, there's my chance to let Nary have it. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Don't judge. Don't judge. That comes from Romans chapter 14. You don't have a right to... Listen, this is talking about living in integrity, being open. Stop playing games. Stop wanting people to always compliment you and stroke you and cajole you and try to persuade you to do something. Stop playing games. Live in integrity. Be honest and open with one another in your commitment, but we still need to be careful about judging each other. We need to be very careful about that. Jesus said, if you feel compelled, see, we, we pick the things that we like and we forget the ones we don't like. If you feel compelled to get the speck out of your brother's eye, he said, take the time to get the log out of your own. Now, the reason Jesus said that is because most often what you recognize as a speck in your brother is a splinter off of your log. You, you recognize it because you see it in yourself. It may not look exactly the same, but when they do whatever it is they do that irritates you so much, they're holding up a mirror and you're getting a reflection. And it's embarrassing to you. And you want to fix them. Because you don't like them broadcasting your faults in such a blatant way. And so you feel compelled to go fix them. And Jesus said, before you go do surgery and take that splinter out, you need to address the log that's in your eye. And once you take care of your log, then if you still feel you need to go get the splinter out, you can go help your brother but not until you've taken care of your log. So, don't take these verses to say, okay, this is my excuse to go pound somebody. Speak the truth to one another in love. Speak the truth, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth to his neighbor, because we're members of one another. Second, develop a holy hatred for sin. Most of you have heard me preach on this to you're sick of it. But don't let the sun go down in your wrath does not mean make up before bedtime. It means don't ever cool down in your anger towards sin. Don't go to bed mad is good advice, but it doesn't come from Ephesians 4.24, okay? It didn't come out of this verse. This verse says, get angry with sin. Be angry towards sin. Have an attitude towards sin that is characterized by the kind of resistance that you don't want it in your life and you don't want it in your church. You have a holy hatred and an anger for sin. Deal with it. 
Have an anger towards sin. Don't ever let it cool down and don't give the devil a place. Then he says, don't steal. Let him who steals, steal no longer. What is he saying? Stop being a taker and become a contributor. Don't be somebody who's always taking from the body. Give to the body. And if you're one of those people who's in genuine financial need, give in some other way. Be a contributor in the body of Christ. They had a big problem with that in the first century. Guard your tongue. Speak only what is edifying and helpful. Think about all the things you've said to one another about one another in the last couple of weeks. And let me just ask you, were all of those words encouraging? Were all of those words uplifting? Were all of those words supportive? Were all of those words affirming? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such as a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, out there is where you get beat up. In here is where we should get built up. We need to encourage each other. We need to support each other. We need to bless one another. We need to encourage and uplift, not tear down and wound. Don't let unwholesome words come. And stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to point this out and then I'm done. But this is important. All through here, he has been using active verbs. Lay aside. Stop doing this. Start doing this. Stop doing this. Don't let this. this these are active. He comes here. And he says, let anger, wrath, bitterness, malice, all of that be put away from you. I wonder why he changed the verb to the passive voice here. Let it happen. I'll tell you why. Because you can't do it. You can't do any of this, really. You have to have the Holy Spirit's power. But you can't stop being angry. You can't stop having malice. You can't stop being bitter. Our tendency is to nurture those things, isn't it? We sit around and we think about why I'm bitter. How my rights were violated. How they talked abusively to me. How they stepped on my toes and invaded my space. Or whatever it is people did to you. And, and, and our tendency is to just let those things kind of steep in there. And Paul says, bring it to Jesus. Give it to Him. Let Him take it away. Let Him take away the anger, the bitterness, the wrath. You've got to be willing, friends, to give it up to God and let Him take it away. Let this be put away from you. You need help. But He's the one there to help you. And when He does then you can be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Friends, we have no excuse to stay angry. We have no excuse to harbor bitterness. I don't care what's been done to you. Jesus is big enough to lift it. If you'll let him, if you'll let him. We are called to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Father, I pray that you would make the word real to our hearts. Drive it home to us. May we be the body of Christ and recognize how much we need each other. And just like that stubbed toe, 
May we be those who run to one another's rescue, who give help and support and grace. May we intervene in every needful way. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.